The Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and take care of it. And the Lord God commanded the man, You are free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. For when you eat from it, you will certainly die. The Lord God said, It is not good for a man to be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. So the Lord God caused the man to fall into a deep sleep. And while he was sleeping, he took one of the man's ribs and then closed up the place with flesh. Then the Lord God made a woman from the rib he had taken out of the man, and he brought her to the man. This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, for she was taken out of man. That is why a man leaves his father and mother and is united to his wife, and they become one flesh. Welcome to Solomon's Knot, finding truth and wisdom in an information age. Today's guest is Drew Moorman, a former student at NC State and practicing mental health professional. I met Drew on the campus recently and was interested in deep diving a host of topics relating to the human psyche, generational sins, including issues of gender and identity from a Christian worldview. So without further delay, let's get to our guest. Yeah, so in 2018, I graduated with a business administration degree. Uh, my concentration was in IT. Uh, and soon after I graduated, I realized that that was not for me. So I went into a graduate degree in marriage, couple, and family counseling at Regent University. Been married for almost four years now. July, Late July is where we'll have my four-year anniversary, which I'm excited about. It's great. Yeah, I have the exact opposite story. I've been in IT in the business world for a long time. And yeah, that's great, man. Um, just based on the conversation we had, obviously we touched on the psychological aspects or maybe the human psyche, what's going on, maybe some of the biological factors there. Because I feel like that's a part of the conversation is about wisdom and truth in the information age. And I feel like that's an area that's just we're really starting to like delve into how the mind ties in with just the environment even that spiritual connection there so we'll unpack that more uh and then also i i've been wanting to talk about this for a long time uh issues involving generational curses how things from the parents can impact hereditary things environmental factors and how those play into it because if we're talking about sin there's a moral dimension and then there's also this supernatural dimension if we don't get our hearts right then we're going to pass the stuff on to our children or at least we're going to contribute to negativity and the immoral aspects there. And then lastly, we're going to talk on marriage. And this is going to be an area I'm probably going to hand the mic over to you a little bit more. I actually want to open up with a couple quotes, and then maybe we'll delve a little bit more into the mind and how the, the human psyche and your experience with that as a therapist who happens to be approaching issues with family dynamics and personal struggles from a Christian worldview. So we'll unpack that some more. Uh, so I have a couple quotes. Life is not a problem to be solved, but a reality to be experienced. That was Soren Kierkegaard. Another quote here is, I have always thought the actions of men the best interpreters of their thoughts. And that's John Locke. And the reason I mentioned these two individuals is that not only were they Christians or held to a Christian worldview, they were actually some of the leading psychologists and moral philosophers of their time. Well, I'm going to pass the mic over to Drew, and he's going to unpack a little bit about the human psyche and some of the things you're learning about in your studies, maybe just different components and aspects and perspectives you want to mention. So the human psyche, I think we need to start with the definition of psyche. Because from my understanding, the word psyche is actually a term for soul. And that's actually where psychology comes from. It's the study of the soul. But over time, the word soul in psychology has kind of disappeared, really. And even the term of the soul in our culture at large has kind of 
disappeared. I think that recently the field of psychology has embraced much more spirituality than in years past. Just spirituality in general, I think because of the positive impacts that basically it can be seen that people with positive spiritual lives have happier lives. Yeah, that's an interesting perspective. So maybe as a bridging question, does that just apply to any type of spiritual belief or worldview? For instance, uh, what would be the fruit of like maybe a worldview that encompassed yoga or encompassed beliefs that you can essentially become your own God or God of your own understanding and the standard at which you're approaching that? And how does that factor into how we perceive reality? So from a psychological lens, it's trying to look from from the human lens of the mind in saying from what we can observe this is the information that we can know basically so what I mean by people living happier lives is they define happiness by certain metrics that are subjective basically so people they report that they feel happy when they're experiencing yoga or they do meditations or they do incantations with spirits or they do all sorts of things and they report happiness and that's what i was saying about the field of psychology being more accepting and more interested in spirituality because they've seen that oh we've left god out of the picture for so long that we've lost the potential. We've thrown the baby out with the bathwater, basically. Yeah, very good point there. Um, so I hear this thrown around a lot, especially if we're talking issues about logic or issues involving metaphysics or philosophy, various kinds. What is cognitive dissonance? And how does that factor into how we perceive experience, reality, categories of truth, or maybe even just subjectivity? Like, how do I know what I'm seeing, what I'm experiencing is actually reality? Yeah, well, I'm not sure if I can speak to the connection of cognitive dissonance and the assembly of truth, of the concept of truth, but defining cognitive dissonance this is going to be kind of crude in terms of i don't have a rote definition in my mind so it's it's a very much a, a paraphrase oh well so yeah jason was kind enough to pull up a it says the term cognitive dissonance is used to describe the mental discomfort that results from holding two conflicting beliefs values or attitudes people tend to seek consistency in their attitudes and perceptions so this conflict causes feelings of unease or discomfort. So epistemologically, the way that I have come to understand how to arrive at some sort of concept of truth as a human being, a very limited being, is basically I believe that there is absolute truth out there. And I believe that that absolute truth is a person because Jesus says in, in scripture that I'm the way, the truth, and the life. And that's kind of interesting because from a modern perspective, modern versus postmodern perspective, viewing truth as a person makes people uncomfortable because then it can't be really quantified that well. It's mostly just qualified when truth is a person. You have to have an encounter with a person to know truth rather than philosophize and no truth. And the postmodern, although the postmodern perspective is maybe a more progressive revelation, it also has limitations as well as modern, which makes sense because it's a human invention. But the postmodernism revelation of truth is there is no absolute truth. And we all are bound to our cultural 
perceptions in terms of our ability to perceive truth. Isn't that a truth claim though? And how do you substantiate that truth claim? If I'm going to say, well, I have my truth and you have your truth, you're asserting that what you are experiencing independent of other people's observations and experiences has a equal, if not higher degree of truth or a claim to reality than my neighbor. For instance, if I'm going to make a claim at Godhood, like I know all things, like I know what's best for me, because let's be honest, most of the time we do not know what's best for ourselves. We learn, we fail, we grow, we gain more knowledge. How do you substantiate your claim on truth if it is subjective? Isn't there a certain level of ignorance at play here? So I left off with postmodernism. Postmodernism is, I believe, a more progressive revelation, but in itself it's limited. Because without some sort of standard of truth, it's chaotic. And from a human perspective, chaos is awful. I mean, that's why God gave authority to humanity to name things and to categorize things and to have dominion over things. The garden, that is why, so that chaos won't happen. Yeah, man, I'm so glad you mentioned the garden. Uh, we're going to talk a little bit about marriage and why I think this is important. Here's something interesting to note is marriage encompasses, in terms of the Greek expressions of love, gape, storge, phyla, and eros. So storge is the parental love, phyla, you know, brotherly love, agape is the unconditional love, then eros is the passionate love. And what's interesting is the marriage actually is an expression of all four of those loves, and that's why it's sacred. What does marriage represent? So we see here in the garden, the first couple of chapters of the revelation given to man about God's character and nature and about our purpose as human beings. I'm gonna actually read this a few scriptures here. In the beginning of the book of Genesis, the Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and take care of it. And the Lord God commanded the man, you are free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. For when you eat from it, you will certainly die. The Lord God said, it is not good for a man to be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. So the Lord God caused the man to fall into a deep sleep. And while he was sleeping, he took one of the man's ribs and then closed up the place with flesh. Then the Lord God made a woman from the rib he had taken out of the man and he brought her to the man. The man said, this is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, for she was taken out of man. That is why a man leaves his father and mother and is united to his wife, and they become one flesh. Adam and his wife were both naked, and they felt no shame. A lot to unpack there, but give me your first impressions on that. And how is marriage as an image of God, that relationship, why that's important today, particularly young people as they're kind of really starting to firm up their identity, or maybe they're even starting to question these kind of longstanding traditional constructs. Why am I at fault morally for engaging in a sexual relationship in college or going out and kind of experimenting with different lifestyles? Why is it that marriage is a sacred institution that only sex is allowed? So I'll start with a theological grounding for marriage. Marriage is in itself an imitation of who God is. God is relational in nature. He is three in one. That's the doctrine of the Trinity, one of the oldest. And it's still a mystery, which is beautiful to some and frustrating to others and blasphemy to others. It's kind of the American concept of e pluribus unum, out of many, one. So marriage is out of two, one. Scripture says God made one flesh out of man and woman. And he also said that he made man and woman in his image. And within that, there's something called covenant. Marriage is an unconditional covenant between two people. They commit to one another relational exclusivity, sexual exclusivity, 
this is an important topic, and maybe even from the physiological perspective, uh, why is it important that not only there be a male and female pairing in terms of marriage and also the sexual exclusivity of that, the rights that both have to each other in that relationship? Because some people believe that's up to interpretation. I can choose to have an open marriage and allow other people into that sacred relationship. Polygamy, you have uh, polymorphy and different things like that. You know, these are conversation points that are happening in the culture and young people are experimenting with these ideas, which are very pagan. They're not new. People have been doing this for thousands of years, but there's this aspect that maybe from more of a psychological or maybe a biological basis, the male and female XXXY be expression of marriage. Why is that important? There's a couple things. So yes, I do believe that one man and one woman is probably the best arrangement in terms of practically, reproductively. Man and woman are different. And in the same way that the three persons of God are different, they unite to become one. Man and woman unite to become one. We recognize our relational identity in the context of different other. That's important because then we can know who we are better. I think that's a good point in terms of categories of how we approach issues of gender, things that are observable in nature, whether it is reproduction and how that factors between genders. Also, from a theological perspective, the relation between the bride being the church, the bride of Christ, and the bridegroom being Christ, there's a correspondence between those two and also a consummation. So there is something important about that relationship that you wouldn't get in like an alignment between like genders that you don't get in the same context of two different genders. When we're splitting hairs on this, there are theological reasons, not just practical reasons. What is the most faithful representation of the original intent of the author, designer of life. And I think that's where we're trying to go to is how we're approaching truth and reality. What is the standard at which we're approaching it? And how do we ultimately align our lives to get back there? If you've been following the show for some time, or if this is your first time listening, please visit our sponsoring page at four, that is the number four, campus.org. There you'll find resources and questions from a host of issues on the campus or in the culture from a biblical worldview. More than just providing content, we want to encourage you to get connected. So if you're a student or a parent, or maybe even a guest, please check out our community page for local and online churches in your area. Now, let's get back to our show. Let's, uh, I've been wanting to talk about this for a long time. I think it does factor into the conversation, especially with how the brain works and even just understanding how we approach some of these traditions or some of these expressions of identity, whether we're talking about marriage, whether we're talking about gender. So there's this aspect in biblical literature that talks about generational curses and particularly the sins of the fathers being visited to their children. So this is from Deuteronomy 5, 8 through 10. Actually, can you read this? You shall not make for yourselves a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is on the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. 
So what comes to your mind as you're reading this? How does that factor into maybe issues that we see in our own family upbringing, hereditary things from a therapeutic or psychological perspective? What does that represent to you and maybe dealing with some of your clients? How about that? Yeah. So zooming in, it says, I, the Lord, your God, am a jealous God visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commands. So this passage is what a lot of Christians use as a foundation for the concept of generational curses. And generational curses can be defined as basically residual effects of your family line. But I was curious about the word iniquity because there's a couple different words for sin in the Bible. Uh, as Christians kind of use the word sin, unilaterally, not really addressing the minutiae of the biblical words of sin, which are iniquity, which I think is a Hebrew word, avon, and then there's katha, which is sin, which literally translated as miss, and then there's transgression, which is like a relational violation. I believe that avon iniquity talks more about injustice in general in terms of systemic injustice to others and the way that you conduct your life in an unjust way. This is important. I'm really glad you got in the weeds. By the way, when we're reading things in modern English, we have to unpack the Greek, Hebrew, and the root words and the grammar of what is shared. Uh, so this is important in any field. If you're ever studying ancient literature, if you're studying even things in a modern context, you have to really understand what's being said, especially ancient Semitic literature. But essentially, it's easy in our culture, whether you're approaching it from a psychological perspective, maybe even in your own counseling practice, you'll get people to say, well, this is what my parents did. I'm like this way because I grew up this way. The world is basically labeling you one way, saying you're never going to change. Or when your parents make a mistake and you feel like you're also responsible for that mistake, why choose Christ and what can that do for you and your generation so that you're not believing the lie that you're also subject to the transgressions and curses from your father? So yeah, what does that mean about that student's identity now and why it's important for them to have that relationship with Christ? With iniquity and, and kind of the sins of the father, there's your family line affecting you. Um, that happens in several different ways. There's a framework I was exposed to in my education, and it's referred to biopsychosocial-spiritual, and it kind of divides up different aspects of a person in terms of assessment. So in my practice as a counselor, the first session is usually an intake assessment. So I'm assessing an individual in terms of their strengths, their vulnerabilities, their issues in general. And in all of those, there's biological influences, psychological influences, social influences, and there's spiritual influences. And all four of them are important to consider. And so in terms of generational curses, you could kind of overlay each of those on that framework and kind of discover some things. Biological, it's hereditary stuff. And then the psychological is interesting because the Diagnostic Statistical Manual is basically like the diagnosis Bible for mental health clinicians. And nearly all of the DSM-5 diagnoses have some element of heredity, even the personality disorders. There's that. There's also social learning. Basically, it tries to explain how 
the things that we encounter as people in our social lives, in terms of our interactions with others, our family, our friends, all the people in our lives, and even the culture at large, we learn from those and they shape us. So there's kind of a, an immediate environmental impact that creates generational curses. Basically, we learn from people around us and our environment around us. You could say that family is generational. So what you learn from your family influences you and sometimes your family's behind curses in terms of what you learn from them. And then there's spiritual. So this is an area that I'm certainly no expert in, and but I have some thoughts. So I believe in demons. And I don't know exactly what demons are necessarily. I think that there's some ambiguity on that. But I do know that they are allied with Satan, which Satan is pictured as this character of chaos and disorder, pretty much everything bad in the world. And he's an orchestrator of that. The demons are kind of agents, henchmen, if you will. I believe that there's hierarchy as there's hierarchy in angels. So there's generational curses that are brought on by agreements that are made with different demons or negative spiritual authorities. Sometimes those are overt, meaning there are actual encounters and contracts and agreements that are made with direct spiritual encounters with these beings. And sometimes it's more covert, meaning they've made agreements with these beings in terms of choices that they make in life. That's actually a pretty interesting point. We'll probably have to, man, I know we got to do something on spiritual warfare and just the spirit realm and how that factors into reality because biblical worldview, and by the way, the Bible is not the only, I would say Christianity is not the only religion that believes that there are spiritual realms and that there are entities that exist in those realms. Uh, Hindus have different beliefs on that as well as faiths of various kinds. But here's something that's interesting to note is there is a point at which these can interact in the natural realm, whether it's aliens, whether it's witchcraft, whatever it is, there's a point at which there's a crossover and these entities can inflict psychological or physical trauma of some kind. From a biblical standpoint, the way that they can create a negative experience is through reaping and sowing. Whenever you say something like, oh, well, I'll never change. I'll always be this way. I'll never find a person. I'll never going to get better. What you're doing is you're speaking curses over yourself. And maybe from a psychological perspective, well, those are just creating new neural pathways in your brain, which are reinforcing the same kind of cycle of depression. And I think the other one is the law of justice and how there's a cause and effect. This is the result of my parents' sins. And therefore, I can't ever break this until I learn the lesson. And that's where you start dipping into karma. You start dipping into, well, that's another point to think about. So there's a difference between you renewing renewing your mind, as scriptures say, and you having to work out issues in your life because of the sins of your parents or because of things that have happened to you wittingly or unwittingly, uh, your decisions or things that have been created upon you because you were ignorant to whatever was happening. And actually, believe it or not, this is important because there are many beliefs and religions that buy into this. If you just do certain acts, you can reach a level of moral salvation or ascension. You see this in certain denominations of Christianity 
But you also see this even among other religions and argue most religions hold to this type of generational curse mindset that you have to work out now the sins, not only of people in your life, but also in generations that have come before you that have passed, that you have to be baptized for the life that you're going to have now and the life to come, whether you're reincarnated, whether you ascend to certain spiritual realms and you get to come back. And so what does Jesus represent and how does putting faith in Christ help us to either break free of those addictive patterns, those generational curses, or to live in alignment with who he is and our identity and purpose in him. So I was I was talking about the now and not yet theological concept and it condenses a couple verses and I believe that it's it's biblically sound. But basically it's that there are some realities and truths that we can experience now but not in fullness. And usually the time period that the not yet will become now when Jesus returns. That is really interesting because what Jesus does for us, for our generational curses, our relational life, uh, individual life, everything, we experience a sort of restoration now if you give your life to Jesus. Because there's one lens that you could put on this and say that Jesus has regenerated your spirit when you give your life to him and commit your life to him. And then the scripture says, renew your mind also. So there's there's parts of us that we must take a an active part in renewing. That could be our mind. That could be our actions. It could be our relationships. We play an active part in that. Ultimately, the process of sanctification, which is basically what that is, it's renewal over time of our soul or mind, will, emotions is one framework that people use to describe soul. To renew that... And the process of sanctification is ultimately God's doing, the Holy Spirit specifically. So we talked about how our spirit is regenerated and restored. And then we talked about how right now our soul and aspects of our human experience on earth are incomplete, not perfect, not restored. And the Holy Spirit, in combination with our cooperation, he restores that. And then the not yet portion of the now and not yet is that Jesus will come in glory in a second coming and renew our bodies. In terms of generational curses, what we can do now is in the soul area, the mind, the will, and the emotions. Some areas of scripture that help us with that. Romans 12, 2, do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you'll be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. Another scripture that comes to mind, in a way been a life verse for me, which is Galatians 5, 16. Walk in the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. If we are in communion with the Holy Spirit, which is a really awesome process that I've experienced on a small level, but the communion with God, and that that requires a sort of self-sacrifice. Like another scripture that comes to mind is, present yourselves as a living sacrifice to God. That's how to live in the will of God. Lay down your life on the altar. The aroma of your burning be pleasing to God. For someone that doesn't really understand what that means, if I were to do just a good work that doesn't have the transformational 
and generational impact when we're talking about areas of the mind and even soul and how that not only within our own families, but also culturally as well. Because Christ came with the authority of God, his word actually can transform our minds to where it's no longer us that's doing it, but Christ living in us doing it. And so when we're talking about our own salvation, our own struggles with sins of various kinds, the reason that we want relationship with Jesus, the communion with Christ, is because Christ actually has the authority and the power to see it through. His words are eternal. The fruit of that is a changed heart that is no longer just focused on the self, the ego, as what Freud and other people would break down, but it's focused on the other and also in glorifying God. And Jesus says, you know, love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. Often, if we're being honest, we love God with all of our strength. We love God with some of our minds. And maybe once in a while when we're repentant or whether a worship experience, we want to love God with our soul. And then the second part is that is love your neighbor as yourself. Now we're talking about justice. We have to go back to the garden, figure out why there's the issue with the brokenness in our culture and our world. But I would argue this is that if we're loving God and loving ourselves, if we're conforming our lives and renewing our mind to Christ, then that actually speaks into the areas of our lives and in the culture around us in ways that have way more profound effects. Being able to love on people that may not have our best interests, being able to serve other people when we naturally, our carnal flesh wants to serve ourselves, seeking pleasure, hedonism, doing things that are selfish in nature at the expense of other people. What are some closing thoughts, uh, maybe a scripture reference, uh, maybe some resources you want to recommend to people, encouragement in your journey, an inner or a counselor for people to help them as they're going through their journey, struggling with various things. So if I had to say anything to a college student in terms of seeking purpose, in terms of seeking goodness in life, truth, really just all good things, in my opinion, ultimately it's finding Jesus and finding a genuine encounter with Jesus, not some religious incantation or some figment of the imagination, but something that is raw and emotional and keep on having them. What would be a way they can start that? And you mentioned, by the way, I mean, scripture. Yes, that's a good way you're going to know about Jesus because of the Bible, but also you mentioned some practicals. We make it complicated, but it's really not. Jesus is a person. And the way that you interact with a person is you speak and you listen. When he was asked how to pray, Jesus says, go in your room and shut your door, paraphrasing, and talk to me. It's talking to God. The more that you do that, and at first it will seem like you're not talking to anything, but oftentimes it takes a little while. But if you really want that encounter, scripture leaves us a little breadcrumb to help us. And it says that if you seek me, you will find me. I think a lot of people, when they hear someone say, seek and you'll find, they say, I saw it and I didn't find. And my answer is, you didn't seek long enough or hard enough. And that's difficult. That's really difficult. But God is waiting for you. He's waiting and he wants you to speak and interact with him. And he loves you. I'm so thankful that I know that. We serve a relational God. 
a God that came to us. We didn't have to ascend to him. He came down to us. I want to offer a word of encouragement to students. If you're listening to this, whether you're a student or a parent or even a minister, and you just missed or really wanted that connection with God again, maybe even friend, a student, somebody told you about this ministry. The whole reason this exists is for you to have a personal relationship with Christ. In John 3, 5, Nicodemus approached Jesus and said to him, how can someone be born again? Do you expect me to go into my mother's womb and come out again the same way I came? And Jesus answered, very truly, I tell you, no one can enter the kingdom of God unless they are born of water and the spirit. Flesh gives birth to flesh, but the spirit gives birth to spirit. You should not be surprised at my saying, you must be born again. The wind blows wherever it pleases. You hear its sound, but you cannot tell where it comes from or where it is going. So it is with everyone born of the spirit. If you've been searching and you've been truly seeking God with all of your heart, mind, soul, and all your strength, then go to that secret place have a conversation with God and say, Lord, speak for I'm listening and just begin to have that conversation. And the more that you do that, the more that you study about his character and nature and about the fruit, how Christ lived his life, the people that he interacted with. We know about it in the gospel, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John and Acts. The more that you renew your minds and see things through the way God intended things to be, whether we're talking about our reality, the common struggles we face, whether it's justice issues, whether it's issues in our own lives because of patterns of iniquity and sin, these are all going to be areas that we want to encourage you to start that journey with Christ, who is the ultimate reality, the object of our worship. And so is there any last minute advice, encouragement, or resources you would like to leave the student? Books, things like that. So in terms of resources, Practicing His Presence by Brother Lawrence, and there's another author on there with an updated version, basically follows Brother Lawrence's path and like several hundred years later, and he's got some interesting thoughts too on it. Uh, and then there's a, a tool that I was introduced to a while back to kind of starting and sustaining a conversation with God, and it's called texting with God. And the way you do it is you just get out a piece of paper, you can use your phone too, any sort of recording device, just like you see it on your phone, text messages. You write God on one side, you on the other side, and you text God. You write down something, give a question or give a comment, and then wait for a response. Just listen. Not to say this should be doctrinal in terms of what you hear, but in terms of relational equity and relational value, absolutely. That is why we're made, to know God and to interact with him. So that's a tool. And then there's several books out there. A guy named Sean Bowles, that's B-O-L-Z. It's called Translating God. It's a resource to help you start the conversation with God and actually hearing things from God. How can you say you know someone if you haven't spoken to them and listened to them? All right, great. You know, I think it's also important when you're thinking about in that season as a college student, having that relationship with Christ, that's going to be with you the rest of your life. So whether you're single in one season as a young adult, even in your careers, as you're pursuing life and your journey, the way that you enter into a relationship or even a marriage one day is going to definitely be informed in part by your walk with God. These are questions that you may want to start pursuing that understanding and that interaction with God now to help better address that. If you guys want, we have resources on the website. You can go to four, the number four campus.org slash community. Look for churches in the area, some on NC State, even as you're pursuing your education in the season of your life. Definitely appreciate you, Drew, for coming on the show and just being able to bless 
bless us with a word of encouragement and also some insight and some practical ways we can walk out that relationship throughout our lives. Uh, people wanting to connect with you, how would they be able to do that? Yeah, so you can email me at andrew.m.morman, that's spelled M-O-R-M-A-N-N, at gmail.com. And if you're curious about meeting me as a client, you can search my name on Psychology Today, and it's Andrew Moorman. Um, guys, look, students at NC State, if you're looking for some counsel, some support, maybe you've been through something, traumas, and you're, you just kind of want someone to relate to, or if even some of the talking points in this discussion came up that just really got you to think more clearly about some of these issues, reach out to the website if you want. We'll get you connected. So thank you very much for your time and look forward to maybe having you here in the future. So Thank you for listening to another episode of Solomon's Knot, a production of 4Campus.org and its associated partners. We appreciate your feedback and faithful viewership since the launch of this podcast. Consider sharing this episode with like-minded peers or people in your sphere of influence. Also, if you haven't already, please take the time to fill out a quick five-star review, which greatly helps promote visibility and feedback when people search for the show. Lastly, make sure to look out for an exciting interview next month with Dr. Jolene Erlocker to discuss her new book, The Daniel Generation, among other important discussions surrounding youth and the culture. You won't want to miss it. Until next time, this is your host, Jason, signing off. Peace.